What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. My name is Marie LeConte. As you may be able to hear from my voice, I'm currently recovering from a cold and can only apologise for my huskiness. In other news, Penny Mordaunt, the leader of the House of Commons, recently backed suggestions that Parliament should tour the country if the Palace of Westminster needs to close for restoration. The debate on what to do about Parliament crumbling down has now been raging for years, and yet nothing has really happened. Why is that the case? Should we really send our political lads on tour? Here with me today to talk about this is Dr Alexandra Meekin, a lecturer in British politics at Leeds University and an expert in the restoration and renewal of the Palace of Westminster. Hello, Alexandra. Hi. Thanks for joining us. So when the Commons Chamber was destroyed during the Second World War, MPs considered rebuilding it as a semicircle. Winston Churchill wanted it rebuilt exactly as it been, arguing that we shape our buildings and afterwards our buildings shape us. How do you think the Palace of Westminster has influenced British politics? That's a great question. There's loads of academic literature which debates the extent to which the physical structure of a building can affect what happens within. And there's a common argument that the building itself doesn't necessarily determine how people behave. It's not as simple as saying if you've got a semicircular chamber, everyone's going to be really nice to each other. But it does shape how they act. And when you talk to MPs and peers and staff in the public, you can see they really think there is an impact of the Palace of Westminster on how people behave. And it's especially the case for those who feel like the building isn't designed for them or they feel excluded by it. So MPs who didn't go to private school or Oxford University and particularly female MPs and MPs of colour. So they tell me how when they sit in the Commons Chamber, they can feel how the building, the decor, the layout, it encourages a certain type of behaviour. So in the debate during the Second World War where Churchill makes that quote about the building shaping us, Another MP responds in the debate saying, that's very true, but do they shape us so very well? So there's always been this debate about, yeah, the building does have an effect, but is it a really good effect? And there's a different, more sort of subtle impact on British politics as well. So the people that get elected as MPs, they want to work and be in the Palace of Westminster. So how many people never even consider becoming MPs, standing for election, because the palace makes them think that politics isn't for them, or because they know that the Palace of Westminster, in its current state, physically can't accommodate them for mobility or other disability reasons. You know, we know the building is shockingly inaccessible. So how different would British politics be if the Palace of Westminster itself didn't put people off from getting involved in the political system? These are all good points, and it reminds me of that incredible fact that I believe until recently there were more paintings of animals than women in the Palace of Westminster, which, yeah, speaks for itself, I think. But so as we're about to talk about, so MPs and peers and kind of everyone, you know, a lot of them are clearly very attached to the building as it is. And why do you think that is? Is there a slight sort of like Stockholm Syndrome thing of people who've been there for so long that they can't really imagine it being any other way? Yeah, there's definitely a bit of that. I mean, It is an incredible building, you know, it's iconic for a reason. And people genuinely love the the Barry architecture and the Pugin decor. So there's aesthetic reasons why MPs are attached to the building. 
But as well, there's a psychological effect. So, you know, partly that Stockholm Syndrome thing of not imagining it a different way. But also to become an MP isn't easy. You know, you spend months and often years trudging around, canvassing in the rain and the snow, putting yourself out there to abuse from the public, often while trying to hold down a normal job and have some semblance of a life. You know, campaigning isn't easy. And getting to sit on the green benches is seen as a reward by them for that hard work. And so many MPs feel understandably annoyed at the prospect of losing that and, you know, having to to work from a different building because the palace has become a symbol of what they've achieved and how you know far they've come. And then the symbolism can go even further still. So it links MPs with their predecessors as parliamentarians. So they can think of Churchill or Gladstone or Walpole, you know, all the great figures from Parliament in the past. And then they see themselves physically following in the same footsteps by being in the same building. You know, they can like, see themselves copying or emulating William Wilberforce abolishing slavery because they're doing it in the same building, in the same fabric. And at a time when public faith in Parliament and admiration for MPs is pretty low, they're worried about losing that connection, that status. So, yeah, it's a really important psychological attachment to the building. That makes a lot of sense. I think my one of my slight theories, just perhaps less serious, is that it is so hard to learn how to find your way around Parliament. So I think once you've done it, you're like, no, I'm not letting go of this. It took me so long. Totally. And that's a bit of status as well. You know, you've, once you know your way around Parliament, it means you've been there for a while and you feel like you belong. And you don't want to feel like the newbie again who doesn't know what they're doing because, you know, this is your your Parliament and you've worked really hard. It's Yeah, no, absolutely. So I've never actually had a pass for Parliament, but there was a point a few years ago where I realised that I could get to the strangers bar from basically most points of the estate. Yeah. And generally, like, that is to this day one of my greatest achievements. So it's slightly more seriously and kind of onto the matter of restoration. So if you're listening to this and haven't really been following this story for the past few years, it's quite simple, actually. So the government keeps commissioning groups of people to find out what to do about the fact that Parliament is crumbling. And every time those people come back and they say, well, OK, well, you need to move out for a few years so we can rebuild it. You know, that's the best option. So at that point, the government says, "Uh, no, we're not going to do that. Then does nothing for a bit. Then commissions a new group of people to say, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that's kind of what's been going on. So actually, Alexandra, am, am I being fair here? Or am I being a bit glib? No, you're being totally fair. And every time there's another review, every time they commission more people to have a look at it, there's a substantial cost for doing that work. So one example was they spent an extra £5 million just to check once again whether it would be more expensive to stay in the Commons Chamber while the building was repaired around MPs. And when the answer came back, yes, of course, it would be far more expensive and riskier and take longer, MPs decided that they would just abolish the body that had produced the report. And that abolition has in turn cost another few hundred thousand pounds. <laughs> so there's huge cost every time they have the review, but also each time they do that, the building decays even further. So it's falling apart quicker than it can be fixed which not only means the big repair programme is going to be more expensive and take longer, but Parliament also has to spend more and more on temporary solutions. Like literally hundreds of millions is being spent on fire safety measures, which is a really good thing, but these are measures that are going to have to be ripped out when the big overhaul takes place. And it wouldn't be necessary if we didn't have a decade of indecision and delay and keep asking for more reviews. Mm. But so actually, so sort of on that note, so is yeah, is Parliament really in that terrible state right now? Like, could you talk us through some of the issues with the building? 
Yeah, sure. So Dame Andrea Ledson, who was leader of the Commons, you know, she really knows her stuff on this. She said it's only a matter of luck that, you know, nobody's been killed or seriously injured. David Liddington, another former leader of the Commons, said that if Parliament was any normal workplace, it would have been closed due to the risk. Now, it's important to note that the senior officials and the Commons and the Lords, they disagree and they say that they're confident the building is safe for people to work and visit. But even they say that there are limits to what they can do. So all the temporary measures they put in place would hopefully save lives if, when the big fire happens, but the palace itself would likely be destroyed. So fire's a big risk. That's a huge one you can't ignore. And it's linked to the fact that all the essential services in the building, down in the basement, the mechanical and electrical services, they're long since past their life expectancy. They're basically on borrowed time and they could fail at any time or cause a fire or major flood. Those are the big, huge risks. And all these services and the inaccessible bits of the building, they're packed with asbestos, which is not a you know, massive problem if you don't need to disturb it. But you can't remove or repair all this broken mechanical electrical services without disturbing the asbestos that it's wrapped in, which then becomes a major health risk. And you can't really get rid of asbestos with people working around it. And we've had a number of asbestos exposures accidentally over the last 18 months. So, you know, it is a real risk there. And there's a whole host of other problems. You know, when you move beyond the, the fires and the floods and the asbestos, there's falling masonry, huge lumps of the stonework literally falling off the building to leaking sewage, the mice and the smells in the building. So basically behind all the ornate beauty of the building, it's definitely in a bad state. Anecdotally, I've heard so many stories, you know, from friends who work there. So people going, oh, well, you know, I, I went to the bathroom and then uh, the door handle just stayed in my hand. MPs offices where they actually have buckets um, yeah. you know, in there to collect rainwater. Someone who had an office actually I think really high up, the window didn't open. So in the summer, it was genuinely unlivable. Like, and the list yeah. is so long. But so with that, guess, as a result, you know, why do you think Parliament keeps rejecting all the options? Like, what was the reasoning here? Because they're working there. So surely they know that you know, it, it is not a an, an habitable place to work in. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is that Stockholm Syndrome again, you kind of get used to it and you think, well, we can't really change it. And, you know, it's part of the charm of the building. But then there's some other sort of big and interrelated reasons. So first, that connection to the building, not wanting to leave it, that fear of leaving the palace. That's the first one then. And then there's second, it's going to be really expensive and there's no way around it. So, you know, it could cost up to £20 billion. It's a huge amount of money. And, you know, this has been going on for over a decade. It started during austerity. We're now in a cost of living crisis. You know, there's never going to be a good time to spend the money, but it's been particularly bad over the last decade. And there's a real fear of what the public are going to think about it, particularly post MPs' expenses. To be honest, that's probably a little bit unfounded. Research has shown the public's actually angrier about the state MPs who let the building get into than the cost of fixing it. But it's still affecting how MPs are thinking about it. And there's a belief among MPs that's both understandable, but also infuriating because it's based on no evidence at all, that there must be a cheaper or quicker way of doing the work. Again, not based on anything, but just because they really don't want it to cost so much. So it can't cost so much. And that's why they keep asking for reviews. And linked to that, 
there's very few incentives for MPs to actually take a decision and act on it. So you know, most MPs are not particularly interested in the state of the building. You know, they're focused on their constituency. It's absolutely, you know, right to be so, or, you know, their own ambitions. And so they're not pushing for decisions to be taken. And so then you hear more from those who really do care because they don't want to leave, you know, because they love the building and they don't want change. And you don't get any political credit from stopping something terrible from happening. So being able to say, well, I stopped the building burning down. People say, well, you know, who do, how do we know it was going to happen anyway? So why would you spend limited political capital trying to get it done? Perversely, the longer we've gone without the big fire happening, means you're getting more and more MPs thinking that actually the risk has been overstated. Like everyone's just been crying wolf for the last few years about it. We've survived this long, so we can put it off a bit longer. and It can be someone else's decision to take. And that's not really realising that, as we've said earlier, the catastrophe hasn't happened really just through luck so far. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's actually quite eerie how much that sounds like you're talking about pandemic stuff, really, you know, about the stuff about crying wolf and being overprepared and stuff and political capital, etc. But so we're kind of on that note, it's certainly more like, I guess, like esoteric level. So is there a wider question here of kind of like whether politicians who are concerned with the short and medium term should be allowed to make all the decisions that will influence the long to very long term? So I know that's something that Hannah White, the director of the Institute for Government, talks about quite a lot in her book. So is there something there, you know, in which we should say, actually, that should not be in the hands of MPs just because it happens to be their place of work? Absolutely. The building belongs to the nation, you know, not the current crop of MPs. They're there just to to look after it. But, you know, even if there are no further delays and, you know, Parliament gets his act together, restoration, renewal, the palace, this project isn't finishing until 2050 at the very earliest. So how many of our MPs are going to still be in place then? And R&R has been going on for so long already. We've already seen this happen. So back in 2012, a decision was made to rule out moving to a new parliamentary building. So whenever anyone talks about they should move to a new modern building, they decided against that over a decade ago. No work was allowed to be done. It couldn't be discussed further. And that decision was made by just six MPs at a meeting of the House of Commons Commission, the governing body of the Commons. Of those six MPs, four of them are no longer MPs. And the two that are still MPs, one's in their 60s and one's in their late 70s. Like with the best will in the world, by the time R&R is finished, if it ever is, and the refurbished Palace of Westminster opens, they're not going to be there sitting on the, on the refurbished green benches. So it's kind of mind-blowing that decisions are made by this small group of individuals instead of talking to the public and you know, talking to the school children and teenagers that are actually going to be the MPs when we have a new Palace of Westminster. No, that all makes sense. So in that case, of what, what do you make of Penny Morden, obviously, the, the current leader of the Commons, saying that actually she could potentially see MPs going on tour, you know, going somewhere else around the country while Parliament is being refurbished? Like, is that a thing that you think could sort of realistically happen? Realistically, no. I mean, it's a really fun idea. I live in Yorkshire, and so, you know, definitely come bring Parliament to me. Fabulous. And maybe there's a way you could implement it on a, like, a small scale. So hold more select committee meetings or, you know, Westminster Hall debates across the country. You know, that could be a really good way of bringing Parliament to the people and engaging people. But actually having Parliament sit for extended periods outside of Westminster so you can do longer periods of repairs on the palace. 
this brings up huge issues of feasibility. You know, how do you ensure any location you use is secure? I mean, Parliament's a massive terrorist target. How do you make it safe for MPs? You know, post Joe Cox, post Sir David Amos. You know, we know the the threats MPs are under on a personal level. You know, where would MPs stay? What about their staff? You know, do you have enough space for this? And crucially, what would you do about government? Because our whole parliamentary system is based on Parliament, House of Commons in particular, and government being physically next to each other so that ministers can be summoned to answer urgent questions and be held to account. If you've got Parliament sitting for a long period outside of Westminster, how would that work? But so I guess kind of related to this, do you think, you know, even if MPs don't end up kind of, you know, going grand tour of Britain. So is there a world in which actually MPs move out permanently to another building and the Palace of Westminster becomes a museum or something? Like, do you think, A, do you think that would be feasible? And B, if it were, like, do you think that could be a good idea of just saying, actually, you know, enough with this now, let's just move them somewhere else entirely, but keep the building, as you said, open to the country. I can't see it happening, you know, partly because there's there's no appetite for it in Parliament. So when you have uh, debates on this, it's pretty much only Caroline Lucas and the Green Party, you know, arguing in favour for a new modern building. The pull, the emotional attachment to the palace is so strong. Whether it, you know, would be feasible, you could do it if you moved the capital of the UK somewhere else. And so you move parliament and government together. You know, you could that could be levelling up in practice. But you know, that would be a pretty a pretty huge change and we'd have to see if the, if the government would be keen for that. It's not going to stop every single MP suggesting that Parliament should move to their constituency though, because that's a, a fun part of the debate on R and R. I really like that actually. I feel like we could do an entire separate podcast of like what are the best and worst constituencies in which to put Parliament. One of my favourite facts about Parliament actually is that the Portcullis House Atrium was originally meant to be a canteen for staffers, but once it was built, it became the social beating heart of the estate. So if you've never been, you're listening. So it's where journalists, MPs, lobbyists, and that kind of everyone meets. And crucially, it looks like a modern workplace and not like Hogwarts, like the rest of the building and it was only open about 20 years ago which shows that clearly some change can happen so do you think some lessons could actually be learned from this from the kind of building of pch from the fact that people are massively using it and clearly very thankful for it like is that something we should look at again definitely podcast house shows how space can evolve you need to be open to trying new things and let people work out how they want to use space it shows the need for more informal space in parliament so when we're talking about restoration and renewal it shouldn't just be always about the chamber of the house of commons or the chamber of the house of lords but you need to think about the building as a whole and how people actually want to use it unfortunately there's another lesson from portcullis house that really hasn't been learned in that it took decades to get the plans approved and the building constructed there were legal battles over the procurement processes and it really showed how hard it is to get anything done about parliamentary buildings and you know several decades on we've not learned from that at all I guess I kind of talking about lessons that we need to be learned that one thing that has been incredibly frustrating I think is that during the pandemic during the lockdowns for a short amount of time you know parliament did manage to go hybrid so via online voting and kind of beaming people into the chamber they can make it to the estate and you know the the second the pandemic was deemed to be over all of that stopped entirely and I know and I'm sure you've had the same but I've spoken to a number of MPs privately especially kind of like mothers and parents of young children who say actually you know, we really like that. It made our jobs a lot better and it made us better at our jobs as well. Um, so why didn't this stay? So, so do you think 
like what happened there was there no appetite to again kind of keep not even just modernize parliament but keep it as a slightly more modernized version of itself like what you know is there any hope as well of this kind of coming back a bit i know penny morden made some positive noises around the idea of making parliament a bit more hybrid again yeah and so this you know penny morden's a relatively new leader of the house and she has shown that she's a bit more open to to trying new things and learning lessons from the pandemic because it's really due to the leader of the house at the time during the pandemic why the you know reasonable adjustments were ditched so quickly you know electronic voting was ditched after only a month of using it so the leader of the house at the time made the argument that covid shouldn't be a trojan horse for longer lasting change which might have been a valid argument except that when he asked MPs to vote on it and they had the ridiculous conga line to to make that decision he purposely denied that vote to anyone who couldn't be there in person. So MPs with cancer or other serious illnesses, people who are clinically vulnerable. This is only you know, three months after lockdown has started. So this goes back to the earlier point about you know, who gets to make decisions about parliament. You know, we already have a parliamentary class that excludes so many people who don't feel that it's for them. And then this crucial decision about how parliament should work, about you know, say making reasonable adjustments during a global pandemic that was killing thousands of people, that was further restricted to those who were able to be there physically in person. So really, it's about who's making decisions about how Parliament works. Realistically, what do you think will end up happening with the palace? So it's incredibly bleak, but I think I actually agree with, so I think it was Stephen Bush from the FT who made the point that nothing will change until someone gets killed or severely injured on the estate. Do you agree with that? Or do you think there's any hope of things changing for better reasons than that. I completely agree with you and Stephen, it's so depressing. But back when I started researching R&R, back in 2015-16, I was tracking what was happening in real time. And in 2018, there was a huge shock because MPs did actually decide they're going to move out. And no one thought they would make a decision, let alone move things forward. And I wrote 100,000 words in my PhD thesis telling this really positive story about how Parliament can put its own house in order and sort itself out and everything's going to be fine. And then obviously, a few years later, everything's reversed and back to the starting point. So my optimism for Parliament getting the building fixed before the catastrophe takes place is, is pretty limited. Well, that's incredibly depressing. Well, I guess on a, on a slightly light, lighter note to end this on, so if you were personally put in charge of all this, what would you do? Because I've actually thought about this a lot over the years because I've done a fair bit of coverage of R&R. And I think the conclusion I've reached, right, so you've got to stay with me on this one, I think we should build a series of boats along the Thames. So you'd have like, you know, kind of like a chamber boat and maybe like, you know, tiny little office boats, etc. And I feel like, you know, you could have MPs kind of going up and down the Thames and you could watch them from the bank, which would be, you know, throw tomatoes and eggs if you really feel that way inclined. Or, you know, just kind of look at what's going on from the from the shore, which I think would be quite fun. Is there, you know, do, do you have any better ideas by any chance? I, I do maintain that is the best possible option, just like a flotilla of politicians. But is, is there anything else you would do? Love that idea. Don't think I can top it. My imagination is quite substandard in contrast. But the big change I'd do, and credit to the Hansard Society have done loads of work on this, is you would completely pedestrianise Parliament Square and turn the whole area, Westminster Abbey, the Supreme Court, all the space around Parliament into a single secure zone. So you can move between the different sites. It's open to everyone. Obviously, you need some security at the perimeter. 
but everyone's encouraged to come and use it as a public space and engage with what is their parliament and their highest court and the crucial bits of UK history. You'd have loads of space. Parliament Square could be an actually enjoyable and nice place to be instead of, you know, like a traffic island. You'd have space that informal discussions with MPs. They'd be engaging with the public in a different way. The public would feel part of parliament. And at the same time, you could nationalise and fix the Tesco on the Portcullis House. And really, who could put a price on that? I think it'd be worth doing just for that alone. <laughs> no, I actually really like that idea. That's really, that's really, like, you could have it now, like, you know, I'm now thinking of like during summer recess, you could have like small festivals there. Exactly. Or kind of like conferences. I think that, yeah, no, I, fine. I will let go of the boats. And I think, uh, I think I really like that. You could incorporate the boats at the same time, make the Thames part of it. Yes, yes. No, yeah, let, let, let's just take a chunk of the Thames as well and make this. I think we've got, yeah, I think we should write to Penny Mordaunt with our proposal. <laughs> Fabulous. Oh, excellent. Well, on, on this very serious note, uh, I think that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for joining us. This was so interesting. No problem. Thank you for the invitation. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to episodes early and without adverts, as well as exclusive merchandise offers. I'm Marie DeConte. Thank you for joining us in the bunker. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? With me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Daily was written and presented by Marie Leconte. The producers were Alex Reese and Jack Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with audio production from me, Jade Bailey. The group editor, Sandy Harrison, with music from Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.